Chapter eighteen of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eighteen The Form of the Solemnization of Matrimony. One of the most curious blunders regarding Orthodox Christianity is that it has tended to the elevation of woman. As a matter of fact, the Eastern ideas about women are embodied in Christianity, and these ideas are essentially degraded and degrading. From the time when Paul bade women obey their husbands, Augustine's mother was beaten unresisting by Augustine's father, and Jerome fled from woman's charms, and monks declaimed against the daughters of Eve down to the present day, when Peter's authority is used against woman suffrage, Christianity has constantly regarded woman as a creature to be subject to man, because, being deceived, she was the first in transgression. The church service for matrimony is redolent of this barbarous idea, relic of a time when men seized wives by force, or else purchased them, so that the wives became, in literal fact, the property of their husbands. We learn that matrimony was instituted of God in the time of man's innocency, signifying unto us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church. It would be interesting to know how many of those joined by the church believe in the paradise story of man's innocency and fall. It seems that Christ has adorned the holy estate by his first miracle in Cana, but the adornment is rather of a dubious character when we reflect that the probable effect of the miracle would be a scene somewhat too gay from the enormous quantity of wine made by Christ for men who already had well drunk. Christ's approval of marriage may well be considered doubtful when we remember that a virgin was chosen as his mother, that he himself remained unmarried, and that he distinctly places celibacy higher than marriage in Matthew 19:11 and 12, where he urges, He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. St. Paul also, though he allows it to his converts, advises virginity in preference. I say to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. He that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. See throughout 1 Corinthians 7. The reasons given for marriage are surely misplaced. Last of all, it is said that marriage is ordained for the mutual society, help and comfort that the one ought to have of the other. This, instead of thirdly, ought to be first, as a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication that such persons as have not the gift of continency might marry, is not a reason very honourable to the marriage estate, nor very delicate to read out before a mixed congregation to a young bride and bridegroom, so strongly objectionable is the heedless coarseness of this preface felt to be, that in many churches it is entirely omitted, although it is retained, as are all remains of a coarser age, in the prayer-book as published by authority. The promise exchanged between the contracting parties is of far too sweeping a character, and is immoral, because promising what may be beyond the powers of the promises to perform, to love, so long as ye both shall live, and till death us do part, is a pledge far too wide. Love does not stay by promising, nor is love a feeling which can be made to order. A promise to live always together might be made, although that would be unwise in this changing world, and the endless processes in the divorce court are a satire on this so-called joined by God. What God hath joined together, man does continually put asunder, and it would be wiser 
to adapt the service to the altered circumstances of the times in which we live. The promise of obedience and service on the woman's part should also be eliminated, and the contract should be a simple promise of fidelity between two equal friends. The declaration of the man as he places the ring on the woman's finger is as archaic as the rest of this fossil service, and about as true. With all my worldly goods I the endow, says the man, when, as a matter of fact, he becomes possessed of all his wife's property, and she does not become possessed of his. One of the concluding prayers is a delightful specimen of prayer-book science. O God, who of thy mighty power hast made all things of nothing? What was the general aspect of affairs when there was nothing? How did something emerge where nothing was before? If God filled all space, was he nothing? Is the existence of nothing a conceivable idea? Can people think of nothing except when they don't think at all? Who also, after other things set in order, didst appoint that out of man, created after thine own image and similitude, woman should take her beginning? Out of man. That is, out of one of man's ribs. Has anyone tried to picture the scene? Almighty God, who has no body or parts, taking one of Adam's ribs and closing up the flesh, and out of the rib made he a woman. God, a pure spirit, holding a man's rib, not in his hands, for he has none, and making a woman out of it, fashioning the rib into skull and arms and ribs and legs. Can a more ludicrous position be imagined? And Adam? What became of his internal economy? Was he made originally with a rib too much to provide against the emergency, or did he go for the rest of his life with a rib too little? And the Church of England endorses this ridiculous old-world fable. Man was created after thine own image and similitude. What is the image of God? He is a spirit and has no similitude. If man is made in his image, God must be a celestial man, and cannot possibly be omnipresent. Besides, in Genesis 1.27, where it is stated that God created man in his own image, it distinctly goes on to declare, In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Thus the woman is made in God's image as much as man, and God's image is male and female. All students know that the ancient ideas of God give him this double nature, and that no trinity is complete without the addition of the female element. But the pious compilers of the prayer book did not probably intend thus to transplant the simple old nature worship into their marriage office. Once more we hear of Adam and Eve in the next prayer, and we cannot help thinking that, considering all the trouble Eve brought upon her husband by her flirtation with the serpent, she is made rather too prominent a figure in the marriage service. The ceremony winds up with a long exhortation made of quotations from the epistles on the duties of husbands and wives. Husbands are to love their wives because Christ loved a church, a reason that does not seem especially apropos, as husbands are not required to die for their wives, or to present to themselves glorious wives, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, nor would most husbands desire that their wives' conversation should be coupled with fear, why should women be taught thus to abase themselves? They are promised as a reward that they shall be the daughters of Sarah. But that is no great privilege, nor are English wives likely to call their husbands Lord. If they did not adorn themselves with plaited hair and pretty apparel, their husbands would be sure to grumble, and the only defence that can be made for this absurd exhortation is that nobody ever listens to it. Among the various reforms needed in the marriage laws, one imperatively necessary is that all marriages should be made civil contracts. 
that is, that the contract which is made by citizens of the state, and which affects the interests of the state, should be entered into before a secular state official. If, after that, the parties desired a religious ceremony, they could go through any arrangements they pleased in their own churches and chapels, but the civil contract should be compulsory, and should be the only one recognised by the law. Of course the church might maintain its peculiar marriage as long as it chose, but it would probably soon pass out of fashion if it were not acknowledged as binding by the state. End of chapter 18